Welcome to the Hammer and Quill, a Bonhoeffer House podcast exploring the good, the true, and the beautiful, and the lives and vocations of interesting people. This is episode 21, an interview with my friend, Randy Newman. Randy, welcome to the Hammer and Quill. No, I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks so much. We're so glad to have you here via Zoom. There, there may come one day, one day we'll be able to get with you in person, but it's 2020, mm. so it's all Zoom. And we're so glad to have you. You know, we were just talking, Michael and I, about how, uh, how great our guests have been. Yeah. Yeah. They're really and, fantastic. And, it, and that includes today. That that includes today's that's, episode. That includes right. episode twenty one. That's right. We I had... think that remains to be seen. Oh. It? <laughs> well, we think you you may want to wait to say that until we're done. But I'll, I'll let I'll let you run with it if you want. But uh, the pressure's on. <laughs> I can always edit that later. You know, we had uh, we had Doctor Jonathan Pennington on last episode. Episode, uh, um, actually, that was episode twenty one. That's crazy. This is episode twenty two. Mm. Uh, it's 2020 though, so everything just feels like it's on repeat. Okay, <laughs> so we had Dr. Jonathan Pennington on, and he talked about his newest book, Jesus the Great Philosopher. Yes, fantastic episode, and really how, fun one. How pivotal we were to the title. Well, we we thought we were. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Randy, we we uh, we got a chance to sit down with Dr. Pennington about a year ago, and. Uh, he was running through. Now, the way that we felt at the time were that we were his focus group. We were the only people he had asked about the title. Yeah. And he was trying to work it out between different ideas, like maybe Jesus the, the sage or Jesus the, you know, I don't know what were the... Yeah, wise man. The wise man. And we were like, no, you got to go Jesus the great philosopher. Just bring it with, philo- you know, recast the vision for philosophy. We basically practically wrote his book for him at that <laughs> coffee shop. <laughs> Uh, but then we, uh, then he didn't even remember it. I mean, he remembered the meeting, but yeah. he didn't remember that we he workshopped. Like, oh the yeah, you were. Oh, you were part of the one of the many people, people that we asked about the name. So, <laughs> turns out we weren't as important as we thought. We, yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> that is how it goes for us. So, uh, well, you know, Randy has written quite a few books, and um, I can with certainty say that we had absolutely nothing to do with any of them or their titles. Uh, but we will hear some about them here on episode 22. Now, uh, Randy, we're so thankful for you to join us. And we want to tell you a little bit about what this... Now, I assume you're a longtime listener, but just in case you're not, uh, and, and, if, and if you're tuning in for the first time, we're all about the good, the true, and the beautiful. And especially looking at vocation and live the lives of people through a Philippians 4, 8 lens, which says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know, so much in our modern cultural moment is um, not good, true, and beautiful, or at least a lot of what's coming at us is uh, just kind of this discordance and uh, can be ugly and, and malformative. And so we want to take time to stop and look at the lives and vocations of people serving God in different in different ways uh, through the lens of Philippians 4, 8. And we wanted to have Randy on because Randy uh, has been a friend and mentor, you know, on staff with Crew to Me. As a matter of fact, Randy, I I'm sure it was memorable that I was in your class for biblical communication. This must have been um, at least eight or nine years ago. Mm-hmm, right. You remember that? Remember you remember yeah. that, right? Yes, I do. Actually. Yeah. I was, I think I was maybe the top student 
<laughs> we have. I, I I don't I don't remember that. <laughs> well, and, and I would have. I wouldn't have remembered that. <laughs> Believe me. So so you may want to go back. And okay. Check them. Well. <laughs> well, we can at least establish that uh, my wife Jenny and I were in that class, and it was formative for us. You know, we were in that class with uh, another friend of ours, Tim Henderson, who is the director mm. of the Blue Ridge Fellows, in nearby beautiful Roanoke. And I remember we used to go, as a matter of fact, my wife, Jenny, who is not a public speaker, uh, did not want to speak, did not want to take the class, was doing it because she was forced to uh, by our organization. She, you know, she needed to develop, I guess. Uh, but anyway, she cried the first few classes. Randy made her cry. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. But here's the beautiful thing is by the end of the class, she was like, she thought Randy Newman was the greatest person on earth. Mm. She just loved you. The way that you pushed her but also cared for her was a model that I have adapted with the Bonhoeffer House. I try to make them cry the first you know, few, <laughs> few years and then show them how much I, I care. Um, and actually, Randy has been, uh, through his books and through his, his ministry over the years, has been a tremendous help for me, uh, in particular, bringing the gospel home corner conversations and more than anything questioning evangelism which has been a really a revolution for me and uh, and for some of our guys we're actually using it in one of our Bonhoeffer classes right mm -hmm. now uh that that anyway we'll get more into that so we were really pleased that Randy was willing to come on here and uh have a conversation with us about his his writing his ministry and his vocation so Randy we do this for all of our guests we always ask uh to, for you to introduce yourself, answering this question, what would be on the back of your baseball card? If you had a baseball card, what would be on the back of it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'm assuming you're asking it as a serious question. So my my first my first thought was that on the back of my baseball card would say, "This man doesn't play baseball." Perfect. Uh, this man is not an athlete. Uh, <laughs> You should trade this card in as quickly as possible for a more valuable card. Put this card in the spokes of your of your back tire on your bicycle. <laughs> yeah. It's going to make a there's, cool sound. There's a useful <laughs> use of that. But since I'm since I think you think the question is is a, a sincere one, what would be on the back of it? Um, uh, Randy Newman is a teacher who wants to help people understand and embrace things more fully. Mm. That's good. Now, you on the back of your baseball card in particular, you might have to have like an asterisk that says, I'm not the composer. Mm. Oh, that's right. I'm not the songwriter, Randy Newman. Yes. And um, in fact, I, I don't know if I, if I shared this with you before, but uh, there was a period of time where I, I got a, quite a steady flow of emails from people who thought I was <laughs> the other Randy Newman, the guy who wrote short people the guy who wrote the the music to toy story you got a friend in me uh, yeah you've got a friend hey one guy even invited me to come sing you've got a friend in me at his daughter's wedding <laughs> and 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 he even said um i'm a man of means and i could make this worth your while <laughs> so did you consider so, so what well, considered i i wrote back and said yes <laughs> But but then I but then I, I felt the need to tell him who I really was and uh, 
that never materialized. Uh, but I, I still get every so often hmm. from people who want me to help them get there anyway. So, well, if you're tuning so in I, because because you thought we had Randy Newman, the songwriter, on, uh, we don't. But this Randy Newman is just as good. In fact, I might argue better. And so, yeah. so stay tuned in here. <laughs> so tell you know, us. Go ahead. Wait, I, I just have to tell you. I spoke at a conference once, and there were there were about five or six different speakers. And when I got there, I didn't I didn't see this before, but when I arrived, I saw the poster that was promoting the conference, <laughs> and the photo for me was the photo of the other Randy Newman. <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah, and, I guess uh, they Googled it and just pulled the, they the first picture that came up. They did. And I have to think that several of the people who attended that conference were remarkably disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But well, anyway. you, yeah. So, so really with the back of the baseball card, uh, I loved what you said. What, what we're also looking for is tell us a little bit about yourself. You married, you have kids. I know for a fact you are, but I'd like, you know, love to hear more about that. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, you know, your your life story. Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, well, I'm originally from New York, Long Island, suburbs of New York City. Um, I grew up uh, in a Jewish home. My parents were Jewish. Uh, Judaism for our family was very strongly culturally a reality, but religiously not so much. Um, but, uh, but my parents were of that generation that, uh, you know, my dad fought in World War II. My parents were of that Jewish generation that first learned of the Holocaust. And so there was a strong, strong emphasis at that time, and still to this day, that uh, Jewish parents will raise their children to know what it means to be Jewish. And so I learned a great deal about Judaism, and I started actually taking it more seriously, I think, than my parents. Um, but in the process, I, I became very frustrated because God always seemed distant and alien from me. And uh, friends of mine in high school uh, were, I, I met some Christian friends, and they seemed to really know God in a personal way. And I, I just thought that was so intriguing that they could, you know, talk to God about anything. They could pray about anything. They, <laughs> that they could pray in English. I just thought that was like an unfair advantage. Um, I thought you could only, I thought you had to use Hebrew which was not my first language. Um, so, uh, so I'm condensing things, but for me, it was a long process of three and a half or four years of rest with the claims of Jesus and reading the Gospel of Matthew and reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Uh, I went away to college and I, I want to say that I majored in music, but if you looked at my time allocation, I really majored in beer mm. uh, with, a, with, a, with a minor in music. Um, but in the middle of my sophomore year, it all kind of came to a, kind of a climax, so to speak. A friend of mine died in this very tragic accident. Mm. And so mm. uh, it was through that that the Lord drew me and I became a believer in Jesus when I was 20 years old. Um, yes, about my family. So, I mean, I'll condense things. But um, a few years after that, uh, I met my wife, Pam. We've been married for over 40 years. That's amazing to me. Uh, we have three grown sons, and at, at some point, we told our sons, actually, I'm sure this is their mother. Their mother told it. It's our fault. Uh, <laughs> uh, my, wife, my, my wife said to my, our sons that you could go anywhere God led you. Mm. And so we have a son and daughter-in-law and two granddaughters in Austin, Texas. We live in Virginia. 
uh, a son and daughter-in-law who live in Los Angeles and a son who lives up in New York City. That's horrible. It's just terrible. <laughs> and like that, that could not possibly be God's will, but there they are scattered <laughs> far. And, I mean, I guess, you know, they could have moved to, you know, uh, Europe or Asia and that would have been worse. But um, anyway, so um, so that's the, the condensed story. I hope that was uh, a good background. That's great. And you had a couple of your sons went to Virginia Tech. Is that right? I feel like uh, I knew our, some of your sons back uh, yeah. back when they were down here. Uh, our oldest and youngest, we have three sons. Our oldest and youngest went to Virginia Tech. Our middle son went to UVA, the University of Virginia, rival schools. Mm. And so there's there's still constant trash talking back mm. and forth between the boys about um, uh, which is better, UVA or Virginia Tech. It's Virginia Tech. <laughs> we have, we've got a hokey here. <laughs> And you know, so that that's answered conclusively. I Dan was on staff when I was a student and uh-huh. John what well, I think was the MC my first year yeah of Virginia Tech right. crew. Uh-huh. So I I overlapped with with two of your sons. How about that? Well, in that case, uh Randy probably came down and spoke some. Oh, certainly. Okay. I I I don't we never we never met. Mm-hmm. Um but I definitely remember having a feeling of like, uh, Dan and John's dad is like a famous guy. Like he write bo- <laughs> he writes books, and and I know Dan and John, and so oh. I'm like kind of, I'm kind of a step removed from a famous guy. Like this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so there was definitely some some level of claiming you that was like he's our guy, uh, <laughs> without you ever knowing about yes, it. So yeah. yeah. And it's probably best that I didn't know about that. So. <laughs> and that's actually one of the things we do with the Bonhoeffer house is we just kind of claim people yeah. without them knowing. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, you ah. know, yeah. It's Yeah, that's it's, our guy. That's our guy. That's yeah. our book. That's yeah. our book that we practically wrote. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit of, you know, we, we really are all about exploring how God is honored in a variety of vocations. You know, we, we, we treat vocation in a classical sense coming from the word vocare, meaning uh, to call. And so, so we, we, we really want to look at the idea that God doesn't just call special people to do, you know, just full-time vocational ministry, but he has a variety of callings, a variety of vocations that honor him. We'd love to know a little bit more about yours. What exactly do you do? You do and how did you get where you are now uh, doing what you do? Um. Well, thanks. Uh, so primarily, I would say I'm a teacher. I like to explain things. E- even the fact of the way I just started answering that question shows you. Uh, uh, I'm explaining my answer to you. Um, so, I, and I think I've I, I think I've been like that my whole life. I mean, I can remember even, um, you know, in elementary school or junior high school, entering a uh, public speaking contest, trying to explain something. Um, I, when I was in the Boy Scouts, I did a lot of teaching up front about things related to the Boy Scouts. Um, so I, I, I've just, I've always been that kind of a teacher. When I became a Christian and learned some things about God's spiritual gifts and gifts that he gives to people, uh, you know, seeing that one of them was the gift of teaching and then another one is a pastor teacher. Uh, that, you know, that, that just started making more sense. And, and whenever I would have the opportunity to speak or teach, people gave me good feedback, which convinced me, okay, this is, this is 
what God has gifted me to do and I should develop it and I should be a good steward of it. Mm. Um, and, and then um, the, the shift to, well, not, not shift, that's not right. But, but so, so teaching can be done in a, a myriad of different ways, a variety of ways. Sometimes you're just sitting one-on-one with someone in a personal discipleship. That's a kind of teaching, small group Bible study, upfront speaking, you know. And at some point along the way, um, people encouraged me to, to do more writing. And at that point, the only writing I was doing was a, uh, a monthly prayer letter to my supporters, financial supporters. But they started saying, you know, you ought to consider this. Um, I had a friend who uh, actually hosts a Christian writers conference every year. It's called the Right to Publish conference. And um, she had read some of my letters and she said, uh, well, no, I, I'm sorry, I'm back up. I, I preached a sermon at the, at the congregation, a Messianic Jewish congregation that we were both a part of in the Chicago area. It was a, a sermon from Psalm 13 about the lament Psalms. And I, I titled the, the, uh, the sermon, How to Gripe in the Spirit. <laughs> um, <laughs> And she came up to me afterwards. She said, you ought to think about writing that down as an article and I can help you get it published. And so we did. We worked on it together and it uh, became an article in Discipleship Journal, a journal that is no longer in existence, I'm sorry to say. Um, but but so I, I just started kind of uh, trying out getting other articles published and getting ideas. Um, and then at, at one point, probably one of my... Um, I don't know. I've, I've had numerous midlife crises. Uh, in one of the earlier ones, uh, someone told me about there was this whole battery of tests that you could take to find out what you're good at. Uh, it was called, I think, the Highlands program. And it's kind of like this whole mixture of a dozen different tests that you do. And then you sit down with someone who interprets all of them and shows sort of intersections with these different tests. Um, and so I'm sitting with this person who's an expert, a woman who's an expert at interpreting these different tests. And she's looking at this stuff and she says, so I'm looking at your test results and I'm thinking, you probably like to build things. And I thought, oh man, I just wasted a lot of money. <laughs> like build things. No, I don't like to build things at all. And she gets this look on her face like, oh, oh, oh. she says, well, um, well, okay. so it, it probably could express itself not so much about building things, but about like fixing things. And like, I was almost in tears, like fixing things. No, that, <laughs> that's like the worst thing in the world for me to do. Fix. No, no. I, here's how I fix things. I make a phone call to an expert and I say, do you take visa? I, I, <laughs> so, so she gets this puzzled look on her face and she goes, well, um, what do you what do you do for a living? I said, Well, I'm I'm in I'm in uh, Christian ministry. She goes, What do you like about Christian ministry? And I said a bunch of different things that I like, you know. And she says, What what what's a frustration for you? I said, because I, I said I never have anything to show for it. Mm. I, it's like it's like you know, you, you work hard, you spend a whole day or a month or a year or something. It's like it's like, what do you have? I don't have anything tangible in my hands. And she said, Have you ever tried to put anything together as like a physical display of your ministry. I said, oh, yeah, like I write up mm. uh, a semester's worth of a Bible study or I write up. She goes, right. Hmm. You like to write. I go, oh, she, she starts looking through this other thing. She goes, oh, here's this aptitude test you have about words. She said, 
you are off the charts. <laughs> you really like words. And I wanted to say to her, now, do you mean words or do you mean verbs? And that, you know, so, <laughs> um, so uh, that's when she said, okay, wait a minute, hold it. Okay. Um, I see this intersection of your love for words, but your desire to have something tangible. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I went, oh, I think that would be great. She said, I think you ought to write books. Hmm. And, and Questioning Evangelism, the first book came not that long after that. And, hmm. and I have to tell you, when, when the box of the 25 free copies you get from the publisher arrived in the mail and I held the book in hand, it was, it, 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 it was a, a, a moment of ecstasy. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) it was there was loud shrieks of joy in the household of newman that is that's a great story and 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 i think that so many of our listeners can probably relate with that feeling of um what do i have to show for it at the end of the day and and it made me think made me even listening to you just now wonder um if there if there may be some you know some outlet that that allows for building even within things that aren't so connected to say like building stuff, you know, (laughs) building, you know, building a table or something like that. And so, so that's really interesting. Now you mentioned a couple of things that seem to really come up every time we ask this question. Uh, You mentioned a a kind of um, aptitude and desire, right? That you're teaching at Boy Scouts, you're teaching how to do knots or something with the Boy Scouts. You're, you, you know, you're just sort of naturally gravitating towards that. Uh, and then that you have a uh, people affirming it, yeah. And so we, you know, we talk pretty often here on on the Hammer and Quill about how important it is to have someone uh, agree with you when you think you're good at something. Yeah, you're good at this. Yeah. So it's not just like, no, I'm good at this, and everybody else is like, no, <laughs> you should think about something else. Um, so I wonder though, I, I'd love to follow up with the idea of having a kind of um, maybe a more specialized consultant like how it seems like that was really helpful for you to to do the aptitude test or the uh whatever the highlands test was and have Mm -hmm. someone walk through that with you do you do you recommend that is that something you think is you know our our average listener would benefit from that maybe michael and i would benefit from well i i i I do recommend it um i i don't necessarily think that everybody needs it but Mm. um but 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 i think some people uh, for me, it was tremendously helpful. And again, it was it was like this intersection of a lot of different skills. So words are very important to me. And um, uh, yeah, one of the tests was, um, I, don't, I don't even know how they measure this, but it was a test of time frame. Do you tend to think in a short-term six-month time frame or a two to five year time frame. I, I was, I was way extreme, like the 18 to 20 year time frame. My mind just goes to long-term effects of things. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so you combine that with words and that, that said to me, well, okay. So no wonder when people tell me what their vision statement is or an organization says, here's our mission. It, it either, gets me very excited or I think, Oh no, 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 that's wrong. That's you know, you shouldn't do that. that." So, so, so it just helped me understand why certain things were so very important to me and certain things uh, 
were very disturbing to me. Mm. And, and it also helped me think, oh, so, okay, so no wonder a lot of people aren't bothered by this, but I am. Or a lot of people aren't excited about this, but I am. That's okay. And it, it sort of like gave this sense of confidence of this is, this is the way God has created me. And, and I shouldn't expect everybody else is going to be like me. I'm not saying that I'm better or, you know, that I'm so unique. Uh, we're all unique and we all have different combinations of gifts. And there's something very freeing about, oh, no, no people don't all have to be alike. That'd be terrible. And it, it also frees me to learn from people who are so very, very different from me. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't have to look at them and be critical or look at them as like, well, no, should I be like them? Well, no, I, I can't be like them. Mm. But boy, they have an insight or an angle on things. And so it just helps me appreciate so much more how God has, has distributed his gifts in, in really beautiful interlocking ways. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. I want to get into uh, actually talking about a few of your books, but before we do, uh, I'd love to ask you some questions about your the the actual process of writing, um, how you do what you do. Can you, you know, share share what a maybe I don't know if anything is typical anymore in 2020, but uh, what a typical week might look like for you when you're writing. If you're if you've got a project you're working on, what what does it look like? How do you do it? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm not very happy about how 2020 is turning out as nobody is, but, um, but in a, in a strange way, it has really helped me with writing because I can't go anywhere. Mm. Uh, so I, I go to the room where I write and, uh, I am just about finished with a, another book on, um, what we can learn from C.S. Lewis about evangelism. We're hoping to call it mere evangelism. Ooh. And, and um, I, I wrote that book faster and more consistently than any of my other books because there wasn't a whole lot else to mess up the calendar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, for me, well, first of all, uh, writing a book is, is a much bigger project than writing an article or a blog or, you know, so uh, the, the mechanics of con putting in print, putting on a screen, an idea. So getting from the idea in your mind to something with words on a screen or on paper is, is it's kind of like, that's the core. That's the same for whether I'm writing an email to someone or an article or a blog or a book. Mm. So, I want to always be writing every day in some kind of way so mm. that the flow from a, a concept or an idea in my head becomes a clearly expressed sentence or yeah. phrase. Yeah. And so I'm always working on, I want to be the best communicator I can be. So I, I, I go back and I, I proofread my emails before I send them. Wow, and, that is that is a, a great idea. Uh, I know a uh, lot of people that should do that before they send me emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that doesn't by that by the way that, that doesn't mean that I catch everything because every so often people will write back to me and say, uh, "What's what did you mean by this sentence?" And I'll mm. look at it and go, "Okay, that's that's not even good Yiddish, let alone good English." <laughs> um, um, but as but as far as writing a book. Um, 
So I map out the book and I, I come up with um, one of those very, very big three foot, I don't know what it is, two foot by three foot big post-it notes, yeah. you know, like the big sheet. And each one of those is a chapter Ooh. and I put it and I put it on the wall and it fills up the whole wall and the whole room. And then I post a million post-it notes of the ideas that I want to say in that chapter. And, and, and I move the post-it notes around. It looks like a scene from the movie, a beautiful I mind. I was about to yeah. say that sounds like yeah. a beautiful mind. <laughs> and at times, at times I feel as mentally deranged and disturbed as John Nash was. So, and I, I wish you could see, um, well, I won't do it. I, I could, I could show you cause I'm working on another book now and the post-it notes are beginning to gather a uh, oh. storm and, um, uh, well, here, so I, I can do yeah, yeah, spin us. it around. I mean, okay. we'll try to describe it to our listeners. All right. Well, this, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't really the best. But I don't know. Can you see? Oh yeah, yeah. look at that. So His desk now, is surrounded by him. Well, now, but see, I'm just starting because you see, there's also um, two full walls, empty walls behind that are empty. Now, when I was working on mere evangelism, pretty much every square inch of the walls in this room were covered with big sheets of post-its with post-it notes filling yeah, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so that that helps me think. And so what I do, I, I just put them on in, in no particular order. Then when it's time to write that particular chapter, that's when I start moving post-it notes around and clustering them. Um, and then and for me, what what the the ideal situation is for me, it's in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, I block off two to three hours. I can't go much longer than that. Um, my aim is to try to add a thousand words a day, but, but, but so that's not exactly right because, so I'll write a thousand words and then the next day I'll write a thousand, a thousand. And let's say, you know, let's say my goal is to write a 4,000 word chapter. Well, then I have several days of editing and getting rid of things. And so it kind of goes in phases. The first phase is just, um, if you'll pardon the expression, what I think of it is I'm belching up all the words onto, onto we, the chapter. We've yeah. had we've had far worse expressions here on the hammer and quill. So <laughs> easily so, pardoned. So 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 there, okay, so there's four thousand words of chapter two, and there it is in the sequence that I wanted, and it's horrible. And <laughs> and and it, this bothered me far more when, when I was writing the first book than now, because now I just figure, well, that, that's the way it goes. But at first it was like, huh. okay, I, I said everything I wanted to say, and it's just stupid. It's just, <laughs> oh, that's just, ugh. And, and so it's a full week of moving things around and polishing blah, 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 and getting to the point where, okay, all right, there, that's what I wanted to say, and that says it well. Um, yeah. and then I'll, and then I'll move on. And I, I think in previous projects, it was about three weeks for each chapter. Hmm. Now, during this last book, again, because I was able to focus more and I wasn't distracted by appointments outside the house or traveling or whatever, I was probably writing a chapter in two weeks, uh, two chapters a month, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's got to be encouraging for early early writers, first time writers, that you you would finish a chapter, and 
be disappointed with it or I don't know. Oh, di- disappointed. No, 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 no. Um, nauseated. Uh. <laughs> how long, how long would you say it took for you to get from, you know, you said your first book, you, you saw the chapter and, and, and were nauseated by it. And you, you said you still have some of that, but how long did it take to get from the place where you really were discouraged? Like, oh gosh, am I actually not good at this? to where you are now feeling like this is the way it goes. Like I'll, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna get polished. It's gonna come out uh, right. the way that I want. I just need to go through the process. Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 I think I was kind of accustomed to the process even before I finished the first book. I mean, when you just start seeing it, oh, that's, that's the way it goes. You, you get the ideas on paper, so to speak. And oh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's going to be horrible. And then, <laughs> then, then, where, 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 where? So, um, and and I, I just kind of came to become uh, comfortable with. Well, that's how the process goes. Yeah. So, so I think with the first couple of chapters, you know, I'd, I'd come down, you know, stairs for dinner, and my wife would say, "So how did it go?" I said, "Oh, it's I don't know, I don't know," which which is a terrible thing to say for a person who thinks that what they want to do is communicate with words. Because <laughs> <laughs> when, when your response is, uh, 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 you, you may want to rethink this whole calling as a right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I think I had enough encouragement even before starting the first book of, well, that's the way writing goes. I mm. mean, I, I remember way before this, a friend of mine told me, he says, well, you know, you know, the, uh, the rule about writing is um, uh, th- there's no such thing as good writing. There's only good rewriting. Mm. And, oh, okay. So, so then it's like, all right, the first draft, well, of course it's bad. What are you, like, <laughs> you thought it was going to be good with the first draft? Oh, no, nobody does that. Um, yeah. and, and I think that that's just very encouraging. And, and in fact, what it does is it frees you up to, okay, just, just get it out there. Just yeah. write it. And of, of course it's bad instead of like with every sentence, Oh no, that's not a good sentence. So for me, it's like, oh, well, they're all bad sentences at first, but I see where I'm trying to get to. And then it's, and then, and then, you know, the more you do it, the more you become accustomed to how the editing or the rewriting process goes. What, what's amazing to me is even after all of that, you send it into a publisher. And if you're working with a good publisher, you'll get a good editor. And they come back with a million ways to improve it even further. Huh. Um, this, this editor that, I, that I've been working with on this book on, on C.S. Lewis, Mirror Evangelism, she's probably been the most aggressive e- editor and the most helpful. Hmm. Uh, she, she's just, she feels the freedom to say things like, uh, uh, I'm working with the, the good book company in the, in the UK. So she's British. And so she'll say, this paragraph is, is brilliant, Randy, but I don't see how it fits in this chapter at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, oh, so you think I should move it to another chapter? And like with a total straight face on zoom, she'll say, well, I'd either move it to another chapter or I'd just uh, um, throw it out. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, uh, but no, but she's really been very helpful. Yeah. I, well, I, I'm already, I'm taken away from this. I'm, I'm actually uh, getting ready to 
to work on a book. I'm getting ready to write, Randy. Woo, and nice. so I, I'm I'm Good. I'm immensely interested in this conversation and and taking mental notes. Going to go back and listen again. But the idea, um, uh, there is no good writing, only rewriting is, is uh, man, it's incredibly liberating because I often find that, I mean, I write a fair amount because I write out my, when I preach, I'm pretty much writing it out as yeah. though it's an essay or, a, yeah. a you know, I'm writing my sermon. I write a fair amount of other things uh, teaching related. And typically when I'm done, well, when I'm writing it, I often feel like this is probably the most revolutionary thing that's ever been written. This is like, <laughs> I might as well be writing the 95 Theses because this is so good. And then my first time rereading it, I'm like, this is nothing. <laughs> this is nothing. This is, this is not only, this is worse than nothing. This is just bad. And it and it's, can be pretty discouraging. And so- um, People are going to get dumber after they read this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to hurt my audience. <laughs> and so, well, yeah. Well, let me encourage you. Um, so we all need a couple of really, really good, honest critics who, well, well, first of all, they have to be convinced that, yeah, you really do have something to say and you are the right person to say it. Those, those are the mm. crucial questions you have to ask. You have something to say, and you're a good person to say it. You, you don't have to, are you the best person to say? Well, how in the world would you know that? Um, you know, it, it, are, are you the most important spokesperson of this um, idea? Probably not. Um, but, but are you a good person to do this? Has God called you to do this? And then you need someone who will read it very, very honestly and just say, they, they have to be able to say to you, I don't know what you're trying to say here. Yeah. And and if and if they don't know what you're trying to say, then you have to rewrite it. You can't go, well, here's what I was trying to say. No, 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 no. No, you, you have to you have to go. Um I I I don't know who said this first. I, I've heard it quoted a number of times in writers' workshops. It, it may have been Tony Morrison, but I'm not sure if that's right. But uh the person said, um, if you read something. And, and, and I think it was just a sentence. If, if it was easy to read, it was probably really hard to write. Mm. And so you'll, you'll work on a sentence and, and, and it, it's like, okay, I know what I'm trying to say, but I don't want the reader to have to work so hard at this. Uh, I, I want them to be able to read it and get it and even go, not, not only do they get it, it was like, oh, that, that's good. I like that. And uh, there was one sentence in this this book on Lewis that I worked on, and I must have rewritten that. It was like you know, it was like the last line of the par of the of the chapter. So you wanted to be a zinger, you know, and I must have rewritten that thing twenty five or thirty times. And then when I sent it in, I told the editor, you know, and she wrote back, "Well, this is really good." And then I read it and go, "I still, uh, just, uh, <laughs> I, uh, just, uh, I think maybe." Uh, um, so th one more piece. Uh, th there is something very, very good though about a deadline, ah. and uh, you know, because because you could keep retweaking the thing forever yeah. and never publish it. And there are people who have they they've worked they've worked ten years on a book and they really needed to work on it for one year, and it's not any better after ten years. And you you just need. Uh, it's like my my dissertation um, uh, advisor said, um, 
well, no, actually, this was somebody else. But but what I told people I was working on a PhD dissertation, this, this one faculty member I knew said, he says, you know, there really are only two kinds of dissertations, right? I said, no, I said, finished and unfinished. Uh-huh. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, a Nobel Prize winner. It has to be done. And uh, so you, you just need to set some deadlines. I'm not, I'm not saying compromise quality, but you have to have deadlines and you have to say, OK, it's time now yeah. for the editor and the publisher to take it. And it's out of my hands. Yeah. And that's that's very, very important. Mm. That's really good. That's really good and encouraging to me, even thinking about um, what little, you know, modest, I wouldn't say little, modest writing ministry that we have with the Bonhoeffer House. Uh, just, yeah. And, and it, it, you, you reminded me of, uh, I was an English major in college and so was interested in writing from the beginning. And I remember uh, something William Faulkner said about writing. He said, in writing, you have to be willing to, to I think it was either murder or kill. You have to be willing to kill all your darlings. In other words, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought I thought that was Hemingway. So that was that was Faulkner. I think huh? it was okay, Faulkner. Good. Well, we'll all fact right. check that. Yeah, but we'll, <laughs> I think it was Faulkner. One of those Southern uh, uh, American yeah. writers said that. Mm. Yeah, and uh, of course, but no, that's it's really that's important. You, yeah, because there are certain phrases or sentences, and oh, I just love this, and this is whatever. Yeah, but it doesn't fit. It or doesn't, it doesn't fit. work. And so, you know, save it for another book or nothing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> or, or maybe just nothing. Well, speaking of books, Randy, would you mind giving us a quick introductory tour? Uh, actually, what I'd love to do is have you just give a kind of a snapshot of um, your books in descending order, okay? So the reason I say descending order as far as uh, timeline is I'd love to spend a few minutes talking about questioning evangelism. Um, towards the towards you know after you're through talking about some of the other books, so I'd love to hear about uh, about the books you've you've written. I'm personally now let me go on record to say I'm personally very excited about Mirror Evangelism, and mm. I think that we can go ahead and say that we we think that's a great title. And so <laughs> if you don't mind in the acknowledgments section mentioning that we 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 agree that it was a great title, we'll we'll be looking out for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, when a, you say, that's a lot of laughter. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'll 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 talk to my publisher. Um, uh, that's funny when you say you want me to talk about my books in descending order. You like, mean from n- good, not in value, not, 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 not in value or utility. I, I well, mean in, uh, in timeliness and in, in uh, time. Okay, yeah. sure. All right. So a quick overview of the of the oeuvre of Randy Newman. Mm. I don't think I, I don't think I necessarily pronounced that word correctly, but all right. So, questioning evangelism was the first book I wrote, and um, it came out of lots of failure in campus ministry. Uh, in God's providence, I was always assigned to campuses on the East Coast in big cities: uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, uh, and then in Baltimore, Maryland. We were at Towson State University. And none of the evangelism techniques that Campus Crusade trained me in worked in these places. Hmm. And um, uh, all the success stories that we heard about in the Midwest and the South um, just didn't work in Baltimore. And um, uh, no, no, uh, no 
criticism of the Midwest or South, but culturally and religiously, the Midwest and the South are very different than the East Coast big cities. Uh, Baltimore is not even the biggest. I mean, you know, it's not even that big of a city compared to New York and Boston. But I, I had I was given the freedom to experiment with evangelism, and so I so I just started applying. It was actually techniques that I had taught and learned about in Jewish evangelism. When you talk to Jewish people about Jesus, it's got to be a much more of a back and forth dialogue rather than a one way presentation. Mm. Has, almost has to be an argument, if I can use that word in, the, in, a, in a kind sense. And so I just started experimenting with asking a lot more questions than making statements. And we just started finding much better conversations. And seeing people respond. And so I decided to write it up. Um, uh, again, first, I just wrote it up as, a, as an article because I was given advice. Uh, uh, is, is this idea you have, is it a book or is it just an article? So I wrote it as an article. Again, it appeared in the Discipleship Journal. But I got enough good feedback of, oh, I think, I think there's more to this. I think there's a lot more to it. So Questioning evangelism was trying to say, let's make evangelism much more of a conversation, a dialogue, and let's use lots and lots of questions um, because questions draw things out of people rather than just kind of plop things on them. Yeah. Um, uh, in that book, I, I wrote up a, a, a number of sample dialogues between a Christian and a non-Christian, and people said that was some of the most helpful part of the book. So I wrote a whole book of, of sample conversations, and it was called Corner Conversations, and it went nowhere. Uh, that you, you can get that book very easily for about one or two cents on the used market on Amazon because it just didn't sell. And um, I, I learned a very important lesson. I, I remember talking to the publisher after, you know, after we both saw, sadly, that it didn't sell. He said, you know, I, as I think about it, I mean, it was an experiment and it was an experiment that failed. And those are very important. But the book, it, it wasn't it wasn't fiction and it wasn't nonfiction. It wasn't enough like a typical nonfiction book, hmm. but it wasn't a novel. And so people didn't quite know. It was like sort of like reading a collection of screenplays. But people don't read screenplays unless they're a movie producer and thinking about. It. So so that went kind of nowhere. But um um, and, and the other thing is, uh, writing questioning evangelism opened up a whole bunch of doors for me to speak. And I found that the most frequent question I kept getting during the Q and a times is, well, what about my family? Yeah. Uh, Randy, this is great. Thanks very much. But you know, what should I say to my father? He's an atheist or my mother, she's an alcoholic or my brother, he's gay or, and they were the really, really toughest questions. And mm. people, people didn't just ask them with seeking information. They were asking them with tears in their eyes and uh, yeah. lumps in their throats. Um, so I, I started doing research, find out if anybody had written anything about witnessing to family and there wasn't much. So I wrote a book called Bringing the Gospel Home about how do we convey this to the people that are closest to us. Um, and uh, so, and I wanted to try to explore not just, well, what do we say to them, but how, how do, how do we think about family? How do, how do, what are what are the um, the internal components, uh, things like love and uh, listening and compassion and those kind of things? So um, I was I was really grateful that Crossway uh, liked that idea. 
uh, engaging with Jewish people. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, bringing the gospel home. And in fact, in fact, I don't know when you're going to air this uh, podcast, but um, Crossway is offering it really cheap right before Thanksgiving, <laughs> or maybe it's right after Thanksgiving. Oh, I think it's right after Thanksgiving as an ebook, so you can look at it online or something. But um, uh, they, they, <laughs> I think the timing is really great. Right after Thanksgiving, after family you know you get together with family i don't know how many of us are going to be getting together this year but you get together with family and you think oh i i i, I need, need help a, i need help because <laughs> i'm about ready to do you know I, I i don't think being an orphan sounds all that bad right now so uh <laughs> yeah i do think that the uh the timing will line up pretty well and we'll make sure to uh include in the show notes and even right now as you're listening there's probably a picture of the book and a link you can click on to mm. go to that sale uh, okay, keep going. I know I'm, I'm taking too long. So uh, there's a series of books that the Good Book Company did about witnessing to different groups of people engaging with. So they have engaging with Muslims, engaging with atheists, engaging with Hindus. And they invited me to do the one on engaging with Jewish people, which was just a great, great privilege. Um, and then then I wrote one more book, uh, uh, Unlikely Converts, because this, this doctoral dissertation thing that I did was interviewing recent converts to hear mm. their stories. And what I wanted to do is I, I wanted to write a book on evangelism, not from our standpoint of how we do evangelism, but from, from uh, the recipient's point of view. Um, how, how did they hear things and, and what worked and wh what did they talk about in their stories? And again, it was for a doctoral dissertation, but the, the interviews I did, and I did over 40 of them, they, they were just so beautiful and powerful. I mm -hmm. mean, and uh, so when I got all finished with the dissertation, I said, I, this needs to be packaged in a more readable way. Uh, dissertations are not known for readability. <laughs> they're, they're known for being very good paperweights is what mm -hmm. they're known for. But, <laughs> um, uh, but, but the stories were just so amazing mm -hmm. that uh, I decided to collect them into a book and, and share insights that I got on, if this is how people respond, well, then here's how we need to shape our evangelism. So that's the most recent one, Unlikely Converts. Excellent. Now we're going to have show notes that have links to all of these. Uh, I'd love to circle back around and ask you a couple questions about questioning evangelism because, well, actually, first of all, uh, Randy mentioned something uh, about om almost each one of these books um, that you mentioned how in some ways there was a there was a gap or a problem or um, a particular, uh, uh, yeah, a particular lack. So when you think about um, engaging with Jewish people, there's, I would assume there's probably not a lot of books out there that, that walk through that, especially not a lot of books written from uh, a Jewish person who believes in Jesus, right, as, as Messiah. There's, you know, bringing the gospel home, uh, questioning evangelism. And one of the things with questioning evangelism that I I love about it and uh, love about Randy is when back when I was your star pupil in uh, in the <laughs> biblical communication class, uh, I have this very very clear memory of uh, sitting down at lunch with you and with uh, maybe one or two other friends, staff staff people, and then um, I won't name names, but a very high leader at within crew in our in our uh, global organization, someone who had some some uh, di direction setting ministry within the organization. And I remember you, uh, you said, <laughs> uh, 
I was just like, I was just happy to be at the table. I was like, <laughs> I'm just happy I got invited to this table and I'm, I'm interested in seeing the back and forth here. But uh, Randy said, hey, you know what the problem with our national conferences or our, our big conferences, which I already liked. I was like, okay, here we go. Uh, and he said, you always put people up there that just talk about all their success stories. Mm. All we ever get is how like some guy in Florida, you know, shared the gospel and a hundred people came to Christ. I, how about, how about you, you let some people up there that fail? I just want to see someone that's like working really hard, sharing the gospel and nobody gets converted. Huh. And you can see this, this other guy's like, that'll never happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it never, and, and it, it never, never did. did. <laughs> uh, but I loved it because, um, you know, in a lot of ways, what, what Randy was saying about the, the need for a book like Questioning Evangelism was the need for, uh, you know, laboring in particular contexts. And I, th- I would even make an argument for our increasingly, increasingly um, de-churched, unchurched, uh, secular culture is uh, the things that worked 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, and that works still in some areas, uh, just, just don't work as well as yeah. they used to. And so I found the book uh, uh, really a game changer for me with how to engage with friends, neighbors, family, people, uh, with, with, uh, evangelistically. And here I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I want a resurgence because I reread the book this year and I thought, man, this year, 2020 is like, I mean, this, it, it's never been more ripe for an approach like, like what you do in, in the book, as far as, mm. you know, the, I, I just think that there's so much, um, divide, there's so much, uh, 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 fighting, that to oh, have yes. to have a kind of posture of moving towards someone by by asking questions and in some ways subverting wrong thinking without just coming right out and like you know the full force frontal attack yeah. is what we get all the time and so the more subtle que- so anyway I'd love for you to maybe unpack the book a little bit more talk a little bit more about um, you know the the model of questioning um, and how, how maybe give particular if you, if you would for our listeners why this way of approaching evangelism or talking to people about Jesus and about the gospel uh, maybe is especially good for our season in our, in our, in our land. Oh, thanks. Boy, uh, you said uh, some very kind things and I really appreciate it. Well, um, let's see. I'm going to come at this from a couple of different angles. Well, well, one is, and I, I do want to be careful. I, um, I'm very, very thankful for my experiences that I got from crew. So I don't want to be uh, overly critical, but I, I, I do still stand by that question that I raised to that leader at that time. Um, it, it seemed like that there was this, there was this uh, recurring theme and, and almost a pressure to try to communicate to people that evangelism is easy. You can do this. This mm. is easy. If you can just read a booklet, you can do evangelism. Mm. And, um, uh, and on the campuses where I worked, it was never easy. Yeah. And so for, I don't know, the first 10 years, I thought, well, what's wrong with me? What, what, what am I not understanding? Or why, do, why am I not fully filled with the Holy Spirit? What, what, what is it that I'm lacking? And at some point, I, I don't know all of the transition, but it was, well, maybe it's not easy. Maybe it's difficult. Maybe it's always going to be difficult. Um, or at least maybe it's always going to be difficult for me. Does that mean that I shouldn't do it? No, no, we're all called to evangelize in some variety of ways. 
then I started reading more carefully the New Testament. And I looked at like where Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, when I was with you, I was with you with much fear and trembling. Hmm. Um, I, I, I saw about how he talked about wrestling and striving and, and difficulties. And, and in the book of Acts, at one point, he's, he's almost despairing and he's praying. And, and we're told that the Holy Spirit had to come alongside and encourage Paul and, and, and reassure him that, yes, indeed, that God had many people in that city who we had uh, deemed for salvation. And so I think, OK, so if Paul is with much fear and trembling and he needed encouragement, Maybe it is hard. And then, then you start thinking, well, they killed Jesus. Uh, maybe there's always going to be opposition to this mm. thing. So, so it just changed for me of, okay, how do I go about doing this, even if it's always difficult, yeah. even if I'm always fearful? So in Unlikely Converts, I have a whole chapter on evangelizing with fear. How do, how do, so not so much how do you overcome fear. I've never been able to overcome fear. I. I've been involved in this for 40 years. I'm still fearful. Mm-hmm. But I invited my my uh, next door neighbor or two houses down neighbor to Easter service uh, last Easter or, or the year before. As I'm walking across the street, I'm a nervous wreck. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I'm like, you phony, you write books on evangelism and you're just a wreck. And, I, and, 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 then I, and then I stopped. I said, cut it out. That's, that's really the devil talking to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm fearful. Yeah. That's okay. God can use me anyway. If my voice shakes, is that is that too big of a deal for, for God? No, I can still do it. Um, and my neighbor responded very, very positively. Now, he didn't come to church, but but it has opened up a much better, deeper level of conversation. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question. What um, You are because, oh, yeah, oh, keep going. Oh, so, so the biggest thing, I think that the, the biggest thing that propelled the writing of Questioning Evangelism was, was doing a very thorough study of every time anybody asked Jesus a question and how he responded. Mm. And, you know, it just became a very mechanical exercise. Take out a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle on the left side. Here's the question. Here's how he responded. Here's the question. Here's how he responded. I ended up with, I don't know, nine or ten pages of notes and I just started seeing that, excuse me, more than half the time he didn't answer them hmm. or, or he didn't answer them right away. Most often his response to a question was a question. <laughs> uh, like, uh, is it okay for us to heal on the Sabbath? Well, if you had a, an animal that fell into the ditch, wouldn't you pull it out? Uh, is it okay uh, to pay taxes to Caesar? Whose face is on the coin? Uh, is it okay? Is it okay for us to get a divorce? What did Moses write? I mean, he, that, that was just his mode. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just, well, that's culturally the way things were done then, or that's a Jewish way of expression. No, no, no. It, you, well, here, what happens in your mind when I ask you a question? Don't answer that. But, <laughs> but, 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 but you, started, oh, yeah. you started answering, and you, the wheels started yeah. turning. So when Jesus, when, when the guy comes to Jesus, oh, this is just amazing. Uh, the guy comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you couldn't have asked for a better setup for a gospel presentation. Yeah, than, yeah. And what does Jesus <laughs> say? Why do you call me good? 
I, I, I always picture the disciples in the background going, he blew it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, Jesus? But like, what are you doing? You had the perfect opportunity. Take, <laughs> take out the booklet. Show him the four-point diagram. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, but when he says, why do you call me good? Because you, you read the rest of that interaction with that man. The guy already thought he was good. He didn't need a savior. He was righteous. Because yeah. when Jesus asked him about the, the commandments, he said, oh, I've kept all of these even since I was a youth. So so what that guy needed, he needed to be liberated from his mm. own self-satisfaction, his own self-righteousness. And a question does that better than a, than a sermon. And so, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Mm. He had it. And, and, and Jesus used this dialogue, this rabbinic style of back and forth to get the man to the point where he realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm not good. Um, mm. And, and that's, that is so, so desperately needed in our day and age today. Mm. And, and also, like you said, uh, our world is so terribly polarized and the examples we see from the political world or the entertainment world or the news agency is like yelling and screaming and sarcasm yeah. and interrupting. And what we need is the kindness of asking a question gently, not, not, not with a gotcha, not accusative accusing or to trap, mm. but to help people get set free to see and to discover the truth hmm. and questions and listening and dialogue are much better tools for that than lectures and sound bites. Well, yes, that is that man, if you're listening, as you're listening right now, I want to highly recommend you pick up a copy of questioning evangelism. One of the most, uh, you know, it's been really helpful for me to think through like you just mentioned, the the value of um, answering with questions. So so not just uh, you know I think that it's helpful to start with a question, asking someone a question. You know can can begin a good conversation. But but being able to have some examples like you provide in the book of how to respond to questions, or not even just to questions, but to strong statements with questions. You know, I know I've practiced uh, since reading that book and rereading it again, um, responding with questions like, uh, how's that working out for you? Or, um, uh, you know, why do you think you, you believe that? Or, or uh, you know, if that's true, uh, what, do you, what does that say about this over here? Or, you know, it seems like there's more behind, behind what you're saying. You know, w- would you want to talk a little bit more about that? Which is often the case when it's like, why is there, why does a good God allow evil and suffering? You know, oftentimes the, the real question is why I've been, I've been good. So why am I suffering? Or, yeah. you know, so, so I, I highly recommend the book and so thankful for you writing it and for your, and, and frankly, I'm very excited about mere evangelism. Yeah. Uh, before we move into our lightning round, would you mind, are you allowed to, are you at liberty to tell us what, you're writing about next. What was on the beautiful mind post-it yeah. notes on the other side of the wall? Uh, I have, I can tell you. Um, although I, I still don't have a contract in hand, so maybe it's just never going to happen. I, I hope it will. Uh, well, so I've written all these books about evangelism, and for a very long time, I've wanted to write 
an evangelistic book. I, I wanted to write Ooh. a book that that you would that would get into the hands of a non-Christian, uh, a person who's outside the faith. And th there are a whole ton of books, uh, you know, that are written that way. Um, I think of Lee Strobel's many books, The Case for Christ, The Case for uh, Faith. But it, what I wanted to do was sort of back up further. And how do we even think about faith? So I'm, I'm hoping the title might be um, Considerations of Faith. And I want to tell a whole lot of people's stories. But it seems to me that like before we, before we, we I think Christians usually jump into the deep end of the pool a little too early. Uh, well, okay, so here's why you need to believe in Jesus. And here's here's the evidence for the resurrection. And here are the arguments for the validity of the, the New Testament. And that kind of apologetics is very, very important. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. It's just that there are a whole lot of people who aren't even ready to listen to those kind mm. of things. So in a similar way, I hope, to the way Paul backed up further in Acts 17, when he was preaching on Mars Hill, he talks about kind of like, how, how do we know anything? Um, yeah. So I, I want to explore some things like um, when we think about faith, we're probably coming at this topic with a whole bunch of different motivations, not just one single motivation. Or um, when we think about faith, we should probably consider that um, maybe faith is inevitable rather than optional. Everybody mm. has faith in something. Mm. Or, or maybe what we're looking for is um, I'm looking up. At my yeah. See, he's looking at the, there. at the post notes right now. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so maybe, maybe a high level of confidence is more realistic than absolute certainty. Mm. I think there are a lot of non-Christians who think, well, I can never be a Christian because I have too many doubts. Yeah. And, and so usually when people say, well, here's why you shouldn't have doubts and here's, here's reasons and arguments and evidence. But I think what we want to say is, oh yeah, I think actually probably everybody has doubts. I, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I, I think I have more doubts now than before. Mm. Um, but but what we're what we're what I think is realistic, what I think the Bible promises or encourages is a very high level of confidence. Yeah. But but not absolute certainty. Absolute certainty is a very arrogant secular humanist post-enlightenment category that that assumes that we humans have the kind of brains that can arrive yeah. at absolute certainty that that's insane we we don't we don't apply that to anywhere else even even very very honest good scientists admit oh we have a pretty high level of confidence that these findings are true yeah. and we can say with confidence that this is true but but they always have a, an asterisk of further research needs to be done here. So th those are the kind of things I'm yeah, hoping to do yeah. in this book and tell a whole lot of stories along the way of people who uh, exemplify the, the principle I'm trying to make. A really, a really good friend of mine actually kind of came to faith in a, in a real way because he read Tim Keller and, and Tim Keller was, was just super honest about, uh, representing other views well and admitting where, uh, where he was uncertain or admitting where, you know, uh, views of Christianity differed or, or it just was intellectually honest. And I yes. think that was really compelling to my friend who, who said, I, I thought 
me becoming a Christian meant that I had to be 100% certain mm. about everything. And I, and I felt that I couldn't do that with integrity. And so that was one of the things that was always holding me back was, uh, I, I don't know if I can do this, if it means I have to, I have to be 100% certain, or I have to, you know, hold to this with absolute con or absolute certainty, like you were saying. And so, uh, yeah, that, that might be something that he'd, he'd be really interested in, in picking up and reading. So. Oh, I, I, I remember exactly where I was sitting when I read the introduction to Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And I, I wanted to stand up and applaud, which would have been weird. I was, <laughs> a, I, was, I was in a coffee shop and people don't do that. But, um, but he, in the introduction, he just starts by acknowledging that, that both sides, belief and unbelief, need to admit their doubts. Mm. And and then to compare their doubts, yeah. and then and then I, I don't know if it's in there in that book or whether I've just heard him say it. Um, we all need to doubt our doubts. Yeah, and again, that's just so honest, and that's so much more helpful, and and just more realistic. And and I again, I think it's in line with what the Bible encourages us or 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 proposes to us. Excellent. Can't wait for that book. Hope you get a contract soon. <laughs> and Thank uh, you. yes, yeah. Now, moving on to our lightning round. Here's what we do in our lightning round, Randy, is we will ask you four or five questions. And the idea is your quick, kind of quick fire answers. Whatever comes to mind is good enough for us. So first question is this. What's something under one under $100 that every writer should own? Oh, my goodness. A bunch of giant. I think it's a notes. bunch of giant uh, sticky notes. <laughs> I think actually we figured that one out. <laughs> Post-it notes or oh my, uh, um, uh, uh, you're good with words. You're so good with words. <laughs> I, I I I I used to be. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, William Zinzer's writing well. Excellent recommendation. As a matter of fact, with $100, you can own that and the giant post-it notes. Yeah, yep. Right. Excellent. Next question. If you had to... Okay, now now let me give a little background here. Uh, one of our one of my good friends and mentors, uh, Dr. Gerald McDermott, mm. a theologian, he recommends that uh, a young theologian or young pastor pick one historical figure to be their theological mentor. So you can't mm. study everybody. So just pick one and it's okay if you, you know, just pick, pick whoever you like, and then just get to know this person, learn from this person. So I'm going to switch it up a little bit because Randy, you're kind of an apologist, you know, even this new book you're writing is, is an apology for the faith. Uh, and so I'd love, love to know if you could recommend one apologist from history to be mentored by, who would you pick? You have to pick one. Well, the the easy choice is C.S. Lewis, yeah. uh, um, but I but I might also want to throw in Francis Schaeffer. Ah, uh, he picked two. <laughs> <laughs> he did not listen to your rules. Excellent, excellent. I'll throw in a third. Randy Newman buys books. He can pick pick up corner conversations real cheap. Uh, okay, so one thing that we ask our writer friends is what what do you do to get unstuck? You're writing a project. You're stuck. What's what's something you do to help get unstuck? Oh, well, uh, uh, put it down and write something else. And even if the something else is as simple as 
a long email to a friend or respond to a question someone asked you. So, so write on that. And that gets the wheels turning for writing. Mm. Great advice. Write something else. Good. What book or books, what book is currently on your nightstand? I love that question. Oh, um, uh, here, uh, Peter oh. Hitchens, The Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith. <laughs> I think that's, so I'm, I'm reading that huh. for, for this book that I'm working on, uh, but I've wanted to read it for a long time. Um, and Peter, so Peter Hitchens is Christopher Hitchens' brother, correct? That is correct. And so Christopher Hitchens, they were raised in the same home. Christopher Hitchens became an atheist and stayed an atheist. Peter Hitchens became an atheist, an atheist and then found atheism to be so unsatisfying and incomplete and failing to explain reality um, that he became a Christian. And um, fascinating. They both, uh, he published this book the same year that Christopher published Hitch 22, a memoir, which came out just a year before he died mm. or maybe two years. So uh, it's, it's fascinating. So that's, that's what I'm reading there. Uh, there's probably other things, but I'm not by my nightstand, so I can't see. Fair enough. Rage Against God. We'll put that in the show notes. Final question. What advice do you have for someone who wants to start a career in writing or wants to maybe get, get a start writing their book, writing their first book? Mm. Well, I, I, I think you have to try to get something smaller published first, like an article. Mm. And, and in our world today, uh, it's more like, you know, getting a blog posted on somebody else's blog. Um, so it's, I, I don't mean just posting your own blogs, but, you, but there has to be somebody else who likes what you said. So they'd post it on, you know, the Gospel Coalition or Desiring God or, or the Bonhoeffer House or mm. something. Mm. So, so, you, so you have to get something shorter published. Um, it's getting tougher and tougher to get a publisher to, to agree to publish a book because it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's just getting tougher. So I, I don't know. Um, uh, maybe the other thing I, I would say is when the world opens up again, Lord willing, after COVID, uh, I do recommend uh, a Christian writers conference if they're a Christian or, or other. I mean, there are plenty of writers conferences. There's just something about learning, not, not just about the writing process, but the publishing process. Mm. And there, there are two different processes that obviously intersect. But I mean, it's one thing to write, you know, a really good sentence or a really good book. It's another thing to actually get it published, to know, to know how to write mm. a, a proposal and all of those kind of things. I'm sorry, you said this was lightning round. I think I was supposed to be fast. But no, that's is, great. Yeah. This is a slow lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was great. Great having you on. I want to say thank you to our friend Randy Newman for joining us here for episode 22 of The Hammer and Quill. And listen, we've got a really fun lineup coming up. Uh, we'd love for you to tune in next time. We're going to interview our friend, Abby Grace Springman, who is a successful photographer in the in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, she also does branding. She's like a, like a one-woman um, media mogul. Ooh. Uh, we'll see. When we ask her, we'll, we'll find out if that's true. We'll call She's her a, a mogul. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, so we've got Abby coming on next. We actually down the line have your sister-in-law. You don't even know this. I don't know this. Your sister-in-law is going to be on here talking about being a farmer. Yeah. Homesteader. 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 So tune in next time. They We're just gonna, got a cow. They just got, well, so that was the occasion. Up. I saw yeah. the cow and I was like, we've got to get her on. <laughs> <laughs> we've got to know about this cow. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Randy, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Please subscribe, review us on iTunes, throw some five-star reviews our way. Until next time, peace. Peace. <laughs>